you to turn to the passage that we read earlier in our service. It's Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. God is going to speak to us, so let us pray to him and ask that he, that we may hear what he has to say to his people. Let us pray. Your word reminds us, Heavenly Father, that your pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor is your delight in the legs of a man. But rather you delight in those who fear ye and who put their hope in your unfeeling love. It is our prayer this morning that as you speak to us from Matthew chapter 9 that our eyes would be opened and our ears would be unblocked so that we might see your son Jesus Christ. That we might grow in our fear of him and that we might put our hope in him in in, in, in his unfeeling love. We pray that you would help us do this, that your grace would be extended to us once more, that by your Spirit we might know these things. We pray for this in and through Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have been with us in our morning services, you'll know by now that we're studying a book that is all about the kingship and kingdom of Jesus Christ. The kingship and kingdom of Jesus Christ. And and as we've gone through this book, we've come to see why Matthew has written about this, why he has compiled this gospel in this way. It's so that we might come to know Jesus and that we might come to join his kingdom. This, I think, has been made especially clear to us in the last couple of weeks when Matthew has been repeating this phrase, follow me. Have a look with me at your Bibles, and I think you'll see it for yourself. Have a look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. Do you see how it starts, the the gospel really, the ministry of Jesus starts? These words, isn't it? Chapter 4, verse 19. Come, follow me, Jesus says. And then if you flick back to the passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Matthew chapter 8, verse 22. Have a look there and see what Jesus says there. Matthew chapter 8, verse 22. Follow me, he says. And here we are, verse 9 of chapter 9. Do you see how our passage starts this morning? Follow me, Jesus says. This gospel is a gospel about following Jesus Christ. It's a gospel about joining his kingdom. And in each of these instances, chapter 4 and in chapter 8 and in chapter 9, Jesus speaks to a different group of people about what it means to follow him. And today, we're going to see that Jesus speaks to two particular group of people. Those who follow empty religion and those who follow false piety. Now, hopefully we're going to see this from the passage, but in order to to help you sort of understand the sort of type of person that I'm talking about, um, let me try and describe these people to you as we might see them today. So the first group we talk there are people who follow empty religion. And you could say that these people have more of a, a head than heart approach to their faith. 
more of a head than heart approach to their faith. Another way of putting it is they're probably quite practical in their faith. They have sort of set their minds in what they think the Christian faith should look like, and they live by it. And they enjoy the the rhythm and routine of Christianity, of, of their faith. They know what they need to do, and they keep doing it. They don't really want to be pushed into any sort of radical change or any sort of serious growth. They're very happy with that kind of, they've set their mind, they know what they're about. These are people that you perhaps see faithfully coming to church. And they're very happy with that level of involvement and interaction. The second group there that Jesus speaks to is this group that I've described as following false piety. And they're a group that is probably more heart than head. They're more heart than head. Another way of putting it is these people over-spiritualize everything. You perhaps know what I'm talking about. They kind of transform the ordinary things in life so that they have an overtly spiritual purpose. Do you know, like, they believe that, that work is only really useful whenever it's explicitly building the kingdom of, of God. Or they believe that, that their, their spare time should be redeemed so that no minute is wasted for the Lord. These are the kind of people who make their decisions based on what they feel God would like, rather than what he has said in his word. I describe these people, and, and hopefully you agree with me that they exist today. You might even recognize some of these traits in the person sitting beside you, or maybe even in yourself. That's clear, I'm glad. Because this, you, you, are, <laughs> this is what this passage is about. It is about people in these camps. Jesus, as we're going to see, wants you to know that we can follow him. And this passage tells us how. Now we're going to deal with these two groups of people in our two points. And if you're taking notes, you'll see that it's Jesus describes the first group. If you're to be our, his follower, you need to be a repentant follower. And the second group we're going to be looking at under the title, Renewed Followers. So we're repentant and renewed. So let's have a look at these each in turn, shall we? Let's have a look at our first point, repentant followers. And you'll see there in my sort of theme where we're going with this is that following Jesus, following Jesus requires repentance. And we're going to see this from verses 9 to 13, where if you look down, you'll see that in these verses, Jesus uses the call of Matthew to challenge those who follow empty religion. Now, we see this by looking, first of all, at where these verses take place. Have a look down with me at verse 10, and you'll see where the, the, sort of the, the main chunk of these verses take place. Do you see there? It takes place in Matthew's house. But as you think about that, I want you to look at the previous verse, because I think you'll be surprised by this reality. What happens in verse 9? Look, look at it with me. What happens in verse 9? It tells us that, that Jesus sees Matthew, like I said, most likely the writer of this book. He sees Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he calls him to follow me. Do you see the surprise in verse 10? The surprise is that Matthew follows Jesus to his home. I don't, maybe you don't think that's surprising, but if you were here two weeks ago, and if you remember what Jesus said in chapter 8, verse 20, about following him, do you remember what he said? 
Remember we looked at this verse where Jesus said that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said that following him might mean forfeiting even your home. And so it is a surprise, isn't it, that Jesus takes Matthew back to his house. But we see the reason he takes him back to his house is so that he can host a party and that he can challenge those who follow empty religion. This becomes clear, doesn't it, when we look at the two groups of people at this party. Look again at verses 10 and 11. Who's present? We see that we have those who follow Jesus and we have those who follow empty religion. And they're described here as the Pharisees. And as we compare these two groups, as these two groups clash almost, we, see, we get to the heart of Jesus' teaching. We see what it means to follow Jesus. So let's compare these two groups, shall we? First of all, let's look at the, 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 the sort of the followers of Jesus. What, what do we know about them? Let's have a look at the verses again. We see what they're called. I tried to emphasize this when I read the passage earlier. Three times the word is used. Can you spot it? Verse 10. Who was he having dinner with? Many tax collectors and sinners. Verse 11. The Pharisees ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, well, it's verse 13, isn't it? For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, they're called sinners. We're actually told that these people are tax collectors, and that's important, or you might think that it's important because, well, tax collectors are particularly terrible. Tax collectors in that day were people who would exhort, exhort people out of their money. But I actually think the real sin that these tax collectors commit here, or the real severe sin that they commit, is not theft or exhortation, but they're traitors. They were traitors, weren't they? And this was a great sin, to go against God's people by serving an occupying force. That's what they were doing. They were taking money off the Jewish Israelite people and giving it to the Romans. Those of you here who know your Old Testament will know that to go against God's people is to go against God himself. And if you're a member of the covenant community and you go against God, well, that's a major transgression, isn't it? But it is this group of sinners, these severely sinful people, it is they that Jesus has come to call to be part of his kingdom. We see this in verse 9. Jesus calls Matthew. And we see it in verse 13, the verse that we read. He has not come to call the righteous but sinners. But it, the point is, Jesus has not just called these people because they're terrible sinners. He calls them because they know they are sinners and because they have repented of their sin. And that's the important thing to see in this passage. Jesus just doesn't call these people because they're the worst of the worst. He calls these people because they know they are sinful and because they have repented of their sins. And we know this because of this contrast, this contrast between them and those who follow into religion. Because, well, we need to remember, we need to look at how the empty people who follow into religion are described. Well, let's, let's do that. Let's have a look. We see here, don't we, if you look at the verses, that despite their religion, there is no repentance. Actually, if you look at verse 11, this is where this sort of comes to light. 
Verse 11, we see these Pharisees at this party and and they try to undermine Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' authority, don't they? They go. They go to the disciples and say, why is Jesus dining with these people? It's helpful to know that what Jesus was doing here was particularly shocking. And the reason it was shocking, because in this culture, when you ate with someone, you, you were basically endorsing their views. It's not like us maybe today, if you were to meet someone for coffee, who you didn't like or didn't agree with necessarily, and you could happily talk to them and, and leave again. And, and it's different to that. In this culture, if you were to eat with someone, you were basically aligning yourself with them. But the thing about Jesus here is he's not aligning with the, aligning themselves with these sinners because they're sinners. He's aligning with them because they are repentant. That's what Jesus is endorsing. He's not endorsing their sin. He's endorsing their repentance. And we see this in his response to the Pharisees. See what Jesus says to the Pharisees? He hears the Pharisees talking to the disciples and he comes over and he says this. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he says this. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. When we see the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament, we know that it, it means something. We actually, we actually believe it's the key to unlocking the passage. What is this passage? What is this quote? Well, it's from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, um, but you can, you can turn there later, but... Let me tell you what's going on in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. In Hosea 6, God is condemning the Israelites for their lack of repentance. In that passage, the people of God, we talked about, when we looked at this, when we preached it a couple of summers ago, we said that they showed remorse for their sin, but not real repentance. It was like they were sorry that they got caught rather than sorry that they were sinful. And Jesus quotes that verse to say that the exact same thing is happening here. Jesus says, he's saying to these Pharisees, that this is you, you're remorseful for your sin, but you're not repentant. He says, look at these sinners, 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 traitors, people who steal money. They know they're sick. They've repented of their sins. And I'm dining with them. And he says, this is in contrast to you, Whose empty religion has you believing that you think you're healthy, but you're not healthy. You're the real sinner here. But you see, isn't that what empty religion does? It fools us, doesn't it? Rules and routine. A dependence on head knowledge. A dependence on our practical involvement in church. These things, they make us feel okay. They make us think that we're okay They make us think that that Jesus must love us, that we are actually part of his kingdom. But Jesus wants us to see that this is empty. It's empty religion. It doesn't attribute anything to our salvation. And actually, it's the opposite of following him. I think the great difficulty in this passage is that uh, we don't want to be like the Pharisees. Don't know about you, when I read this, I think, oh yeah, those guys over those Pharisees, up to it again. There's people who follow empty religion. There they are at it again. They just don't get the gospel. But I think the point of this passage is that it makes us question whether or not we are. And I think it encourages us. It encourages us to ask us, do we rely more in our head than our heart? 
I think this is where this illustration of a doctor is so great. Jesus uses it there, doesn't he, in verse 12. He says, the healthy, you know, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick. That's a great picture, isn't it? You go into a doctor's surgery, and if they tell you that you're sick, well, well, you're supposed to listen. Most of us do. You feel unwell. You think something's wrong. Where do we go? We don't go. We don't go. (laughs) There's many places we could go, but we go to the doctor, don't we? And Jesus here is telling us that he is the doctor. But he's also telling us that, that we're all sick. We're all unbelievably sinful. Whether we're like the tax collector, we're severely sinful, or we're like the Pharisee that follows empty religion. And the point is that he is the only one. He is the only one who can make us better. Jesus says... If you are a sinner, if you admit that you are a sinner this morning, all you have to do is repent. All you have to do is recognize your sin, call it as what it is. And Jesus says, I have come for you. This is the challenge to those following into religion. He says, don't think you're better than those sinners. If anything, follow their example. Hear Jesus' voice. Acknowledge your sin, repent of it, and you too will be able to dine with the King of glory. It's the first group of people that Jesus deals with, those who follow into your religion. And it's easy, following Jesus is easy. Just acknowledge you're sinful and repent of it. But the second thing we need to see that following Jesus brings renewal. And we see this in the sort of second half of our passage, verses 14 to 17, where Jesus uses his disciples to, to challenge those who, who follow false piety. And as we look at these verses, we're going to see that actually they have many similarities to the ones that we've just studied. For instance, we have another contrast between two groups of followers, um, John's disciples and, and Jesus' followers. And, and as before, it occurs around a feast. Remember in our first point, Jesus hosted a feast for sinners. Well, in these verses, Jesus refers to a feast for his disciples. And we see this, it begins in verse 14. Have a look down with me at verse 14, where, where John's, John's, John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus. And they ask him, they ask him, why are your disciples not fasting like they and the Pharisees are? Well, as we look at Jesus' response to them, we get to the heart of this point. And the heart of this point is that despite their piety, and they were an incredibly pious bunch, John the Baptist's followers, despite their piety... They still do not know who Jesus is, and they do not understand what it means to be part of his kingdom. We see this for ourselves, don't we? Look at verse 15, look at Jesus' response. He says, how can guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Now keep your eyes on that verse, because in that verse, Jesus drops a pretty serious hint of who he is. You'll see there, he he refers to himself as the bridegroom, doesn't he? Well, again, if you're familiar with your Bibles, you will know that this is a term that God has used to describe himself. This is actually quite remarkable that Jesus says this. Remarkable on a number of levels, that he's claiming to be God on one level. But on another level, he's he's saying to these so-called well-taught people that he's God. And he's revealing to them that even though they're incredibly spiritual, incredibly well-taught, incredibly pious... They've actually completely misunderstood who he is. 
And you take into account all that Jesus has done over these last few weeks, if you've been here, you'll know how remarkable that is. But this isn't Jesus' main point here. His main point comes from verses 16 and 17. And it comes from this kind of strange double parable, first of all about a garment and then about a wineskin. I don't know whenever you read those, or whenever we read those earlier, how they, they struck you. Um, certainly whenever I read them for the first time, and even now they kind of jar with me. They don't really seem to fit here, do they? Jesus is kind of changing. You know, he's just throwing out multiple different kind of pictures. You know, we have a wedding, then we have a piece of garment sewn into an old piece of garment and a wineskin. And some of these pictures are odd to us. We don't really seem to understand them. But Jesus, in changing the picture, is changing the direction of the conversation. He's changing the focus, not onto him, but onto what it means to be a member of his kingdom. This is another contrast, isn't it, between this passage and the passage before. The passage before was all about what it means to know the king. We need to repent to the king. Well, this passage is what it means to be a disciple. We actually see that. If you're interested, you can see that in in how the questions are directed. In the first point, it was from the Pharisees to disciples to Jesus. In this point, it goes John the Baptist to Jesus to the disciples. It's one of those little contrasts I encourage you when you're studying your Bible to look out for, to dig into the passage and see. You don't need to understand them. Don't worry about it if you don't understand it. What you need, need to understand is that Jesus is telling these pious people what it means to be a part of his kingdom. And what does it mean to be part of his kingdom? Well, let's try and understand these two pictures. He's saying that if if you're a part of his kingdom, then you will be made new. The best way of describing this, I think, is if we hone into verse 17. Because what does he say about the wineskin? He says, if you become part of Jesus' kingdom, it's not like you're a piece of old wineskin that has a bit replaced. He says that wouldn't work, doesn't he? He says, think of an old wineskin. If you put a new bit on it, it just tears. No, look at the very last line. He says, new wine, new wineskins. And both are preserved. That's what Jesus is basically saying. He says, if you join my kingdom, you'll be made new. It's not that bits of you will be replaced or that you'll be repaired. You'll be completely made new. And that is what Jesus wanted these pious people to know. He wants them to know that there's nothing that they can do to make themselves or this world a better place. And he does that. He says, your approach, unfortunately, is too much of a heart overhead mentality. We actually were discussing this in in adult Bible class a a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we've, we've, We've been talking about how we kind of misunderstand sin, and that's kind of been the problem here with these pious people. They think that they can change the world, change themselves. But let me try and uh, let me lift a quote that we looked at a couple of weeks ago from Adel Bible class about sin. This is what this guy Bavink says about sin. He says, as extensive as original sin is in humanity as a whole, it is also in the individual person. And this is the important bit. It holds sway over the whole person, over mind and will, heart and conscience soul and body, over all one's capacities and powers. Like Bavink, you'll see there in the first line, is talking about original sin. And original sin is the, the name of the sin that was given to Adam's first sin, the sin that happened in the Garden of Eden. And Bavink is saying that not only does Adam's sin, you know, the curse of Adam's sin hang over all of this world, he's saying it actually it resides in every single one of us. 
It has been passed down from generation to generation. It's not just some mark that we wear, mark that we wear like some sort of tattoo. He says it affects every bit of our being. And Jesus, the reason I say that is because Jesus wants these pious people to know that even their best, most spiritual works cannot please God. We cannot please God. We cannot enter his kingdom on our own. We cannot do it. What we need is complete renewal. And Jesus shows this by contrasting the followers of false piety with his disciples. Look again at verse 15. What, is, what are Jesus' disciples doing? They're not fe- fasting, they're feasting. Fasting is connected to mourning and, and mourning for sin. But they don't need to mourn for sin anymore. They've repented of their sins. They've been forgiven. And now they are fully fledged members of his kingdom. And they are celebrating. The reason Jesus gives us this parable is to challenge those who follow false piety. He wants us to see what genuine membership in his kingdom looks like. It's a kingdom of people filled with those who have repented, who recognize what Jesus has done for them, and they live in the light of that. Well, as again, I think you'll agree that this, these false pious people, these people who follow false piety could easily be us. You ever seen these traits in yourself? Times when you're ruled more by your heart than your head. Times when we do things maybe according to what we feel God might want rather than what actually, you know, he says in his words rather than what our head dictates. Ever find yourself so, so busy doing stuff that we think is spiritual but it's actually not kingdom living, certainly not as prescribed in God's word? Have you ever been convinced that you can maybe restore this world? Maybe replace bits of it? Make it better? Maybe try and make it look a little bit like God's kingdom? Well, I think the problem is we forget that we're too sinful. We forget that this world is too sinful. And what we need is something completely new. You see, like John's disciples, we miss the point, don't we? We, we? we neglect to see who Jesus really is. He's the bridegroom, isn't he? And we neglect to see that it is only by following him that we can be renewed. It's only by responding to his call. Not a choice that we have. We're compelled. When he speaks to us, we can do nothing but respond. And when he calls us, we enter his kingdom of fasting or feasting and celebration. I think this is the challenge to us, isn't it? This is the challenge to us. We need to see who Jesus is. We need to see that he's the bridegroom. We need to hear his call. We need to repent. And we need to be renewed. Let me conclude. Let me remind us what Matthew is all about. Matthew is all about the kingship and kingdom of Jesus Christ. And I put up those passages there that we looked at earlier, following him. And we saw that it's, all about following him, isn't it? It's all about following him. Well, this morning he wants us to know that we're, he wants to remind us that we're sinful. But he also wants to remind us that empty religion is worthless. And empty, false piety is worthless. He says, if this is you, and it most likely is, some of us in part, he says, the good news 
The good news is the kingdom of God is for you. All you have to do is repent of your sins. Acknowledge that you are a sinner. Repent of your sins. And you can know the king. All you have to do is look at Jesus, who he really is. And you can be made new. Jesus, follow him. He's the doctor. He's the bridegroom. He can heal us of our sin. And he can bring us into his glorious kingdom. Well, let me pray for us as we consider these things. Jesus, you said to the the centurion when he believed, he said, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus, we recognize that this is the reality for us all. And we recognize that the only way that we can join your feast, that we can dine with the King of Kings, is that whenever we hear you call our name, that we repent of our sins, acknowledge our sins, repent of our sins, and find renewal in you. Help us not to find faith or salvation in works, or in piety, but rather see that they are empty and false. Pray that we would see you, come to know you, that you are the King of kings, and that your kingdom is beyond anything that we can recreate ourselves. Jesus, thank you that by your Spirit you call us to yourself. Thank you for this amazing grace, and we pray that we would all follow you. Amen. Well, we're going to sing a song about the sufficiency of of Christ and how he is enough for us, enough to cover all.